This episode of Good Morning is brought to you by Grief, a guided journal. Created by Joe Betts, this journal can be used whether your loss was recent or years down the track. It is a safe space to let it all out with no judgment or positive platitudes, which, of course, we absolutely love. Listening to Good Morning, the podcast talking all things grief with honesty and humor. Welcome back to the Good Morning Podcast. We are your hosts, Sal and Im, and guys, we are finally back with season five. We've missed you, even though it hasn't really been that long, but it's felt like it's been a while, hasn't it, Sal? It does, and it's so good to be back in your ears. It's uh, it's going to be a really good season, isn't it? I'm super, super excited. So pumped for it. We've got an amazing lineup of guests for you guys, and we are introducing some exciting new segments. So you'll notice things are a little, little different around here at Good Morning, but yeah, so many exciting things happening for you. And we hope you guys have all been okay, and you're doing okay in your grief as well. Im, how are you doing? I'm I'm pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. I've joined back at the gym, which um, I need to do. I need to just like keep it a regular thing. It's like kind of, I think, because I was so sick back to back for ages, for months. Yeah. I kept getting weird viruses. Um, I just, yeah, stopped exercising and it made such a difference to my mental health. Yes. Yeah. It, it really, really can. Like I, like you, I've joined the gym recently as well. And I notice when I've done like, you know, high intensity or a cardio workout, I feel so much better in myself. Like it's so yes. important, isn't it? To like know what works for you. I'm proud of you, mate, for, for signing up and getting back into it and finding that time as well. Sometimes, you know, we're busy and we're like, oh, I don't have time today, but you've got to make the time, right? Honestly, time, <laughs> like it's just mental trying to fit things in. Um, but I wanted to share for anyone who has kind of been wanting to get back into exercising or doing stuff. So my my hypnotherapist, psychopharmacologist, like amazing guy I see, Terry, told me that there's like a sweet spot with exercising. So if you're doing like a, you know, kind of a fast paced walk or a run. So I like to do running because I feel like I like to get a sweat going. So that makes me feel like I've actually worked hard, I guess, like you with your hit classes. Yeah. Um, he said like 23 minutes is the sweet spot. So at 23 minutes, something shifts in your like brain chemicals and, and things. So if you're wanting to do like, yeah, exercise, all you have to do is 23 minute walk, 23 minute jog, but just don't stop. So don't stop and say hi to the neighbor or anything like that. Like keep going. So now I'm like, I do on the tready, like 23 minutes. Sometimes I go over to 25. Um, but yeah, so that's the sweet spot for your brain chemical balancing. That's so good to know, isn't it? I know that when I've done personal training in the past, um, they've said like, you've got to go over the 20 minute mark. So well, I'm really glad that you're feeling better for it. And yeah, just, it does make the world of difference. Yeah. How, what else is going on in Sal's world? Um, so my my best friend Neil is coming to Australia, which is oh really God, exciting. I, can't wait. I cannot wait to meet Neil. <laughs> I'm so excited. So um so by the time this episode goes goes live, he should be here. Um so yeah, Neil's my bestie. We've been best friends for like 20 years. And you know what? Like I haven't actually seen anyone from the UK, any of my family back home, any of my friends since I got back from the UK after mum died. So it kind of made me realize like I've been dealing with like mm. all of this grief and all of my grief and everything like without the people who know me like long time long time around right. me and that's that's a lot really so it's gotta so, be so tough yeah and I'm so I'm so excited to have him here like so Neil was like the friend that picked me up from the airport when I landed after mum died he's the friend that helped me turn my mum's house upside down to find her will when I was trying to sell my mum's house from the other side of the world, um, Neil was the one that went round at midnight when the alarm went off. Oh my God, and- what was that funny story <laughs> oh, again? Yeah. Wasn't there like, wasn't he freaking out about ghosts or something? <laughs> so he like, him and his partner rocked up to my mum's house. It was like midnight, the alarm was going off. I was getting WhatsApps from the neighbour next door and I'm like, That's I don't know right. what I can do. Like I'm on the <laughs> other side of the world. So Neil went round and he was like... He- 
I spoke to him the next day. He was like, uh, I thought there might be a burglar. Burglar. I wasn't sure what to do. And the only thing I had in my car was a cake tin. So he's like stalking <laughs> around my mum's house, like with a cake tin, thinking that there's like someone in, in the house, like an intruder. It's just really funny. So yeah, he's that friend. Like he, he knew my mum really well as well. And um, yeah, I'm just so excited to have him here. Like it's going to be emotional, I think. Um, but it's also going to be amazing. So yeah, I'm pumped. Can't wait to meet him. Neil, yes. if you're listening, I've heard all about you. Get ready. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I've got a funny story actually. Um, so late, lately, you know how we're always talking about like how to keep the person who died alive, you know, yeah. in your kids' lives especially, like, you know, so they, so they remember them because obviously my, my daughter was too young when mom died. She's not really going to remember her. It's my job to kind of, yeah, make her know her. And... I, ever since she was a baby, I'd always be like, if there's a feather, I'd be like, grandma, flashing lights, it's grandma. Um, We just hit an all-time low the other night when I was putting her to bed and there was a piece of black, like, lint on the bed. And Lena goes, it's grandma, it's grandma. I was like, it's fucking lint from my sock, mate. But like, yeah, it's grandma. I was like, she's come to see you. She loves you so much. She's like, oh, we'll put her next to the bed. And I put her next to the, like, the, the lint, oh the lint next to the bed. And I go, okay, we're going to turn the light off now. We blow the light out. We go, one, two, three, blow out the light. And then turn the light off. And she goes, oh, grandma can't see me now. I was like, darling, oh. she's everywhere. She can see you all the time. So yeah, we've now graduated to grandma as a piece of sock lint um, <laughs> I did, like, it's equal parts like absolutely excruciatingly painful but also hilarious so oh my god yeah oh, you'd like I, that one I love that one <laughs> graduated to a piece of sock lint that is brilliant but you've got to like you've got to run with it haven't you like you've got to run with it, it when you're in that so moment it's so sad also like how fucking sad Enough about us. And I know, we could go on for an hour to catch um, up. <laughs> who are we talking to today? Our conversation today is with best-selling author, psychotherapist and grief advocate, Megan Devine, aka the queen of grief truth bombs. We know many of you are fans of Megan's work and she didn't disappoint. So we got really real on all the nuances grievers face, didn't we, Sal? We, we really did. And what I really like about her and I think loads of our listeners and people in the grief community like about Megan is she's so open and honest and loads of you, whenever we do a call out on our Instagram to say like, what grief books do you like? Like what's really helped you in your grief? Loads of people always talk about Megan and her work and she just says it how it is. And she did not disappoint in this conversation either. She she was really, really open and honest. And, you know, she she goes into depth about some of the key issues that many grievers face that we don't always talk about or we might not understand or know how to cope with. You know, things like the shock factor of grief, why our self-esteem can take a hit after loss, coping with panic attacks, and also a big one, relationships and setting boundaries. So I feel like we cover a lot of juicy topics in this episode. We do. And I also love that. She's ruthlessly honest. And we know you guys love that too. And there's so much we unpack in this conversation. So let's jump in. Enjoy, guys. Megan Devine, it is so great to have you join us. We are massive fans of your work. And one thing we especially love about you is your griefy truth bombs. It feels like you always nail exactly how things feel. I can't, I can't lie about shit. I can't, I can't do it, right? Like I can't... Um... I can't, I can't do platitudes. Like I can't pretend that things are okay when they're not okay. Like I can't, I can't do it. The only thing I can do is be completely quiet or tell the truth about things. Those are my only options. I think a lot of people in the grief space really appreciate your honesty and yeah, we're here for it. So it's such a treat to have you join us today. And there is so much that we want to chat about, but first, could you start by telling our listeners a bit about your personal story with loss and what led you to be one of the leaders in the grief space. Sure. So um, I have been a psychotherapist for 20, 20 something years. I don't, I, I can't math, um, but I've been a psychotherapist for a really long time. I was working with grief and trauma and abuse and addiction issues, the sort of typical human messy shit. Um, and I was sick of it. I was tired of sitting and listening 
and sitting and listening and just being a disembodied head, speaking of disembodied heads here on our, on our screens, but um, I needed a break. And so my partner was going to take over financial support of our family so that I could take a break and not, uh, not talk to people for a while. But I didn't get a chance to do that because two days after that conversation, Matt died in an accident and I quit. I closed my practice. I had somebody else actually close my practice for me because I didn't want to talk to anybody. I swore I would never come back to, uh, to psychotherapy. I honestly didn't see the point. And uh, I actually tried to be a farmer for a long time, uh, studied cheese making, did all of this stuff. But you know, back then in 2009, it's kind of hard to believe now, but even blogs weren't really a thing back then. And certainly places that talked openly about the realities of grief did not exist. There was one website um, that I found after many, many, many hours of searching online. There was one place that talked about grief for people who were like me, like my age and widowed and younger. Um, and through that one single website, looking through the comments of every single post, I found 10 or 15 people that were like me and we made a little community together. And that experience of feeling like we were the only ones in the world we could talk to and, and tell the truth. And the only, we were the only people who really mirrored the reality of the world back to each other. Everything else was just this like cacophony of bullshit, even well-meaning bullshit. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, after I mentioned that I, uh, that I was a farmer for a while in the early days and years after Matt died, because I, I really did not want to come back to the, the world of therapy or the world of teaching, but I, one, farming is a really hard way to make a living. And two, I knew that I could make things better for people like me. I'm really good at what I do. I'm really, really good at what I do. And I knew that I could change things if I came back and started talking about it. So that is what I did. And I, um, I think it is, it'll be 10 years, 10 years next year for my company, for the work that I do in the world, it'll be 10 years. Um, and you know, before it's okay came out, I was just writing all the time, getting, like media, media pieces and trying to get people, trying to get media outlets to talk about grief 10 years ago was a lot harder than it is now. And just, it was interesting. Whenever I would pitch a piece to a, a major media outlet, they would say, oh, this is great. This is wonderful, but nobody wants to talk about this. And I'm like, if you talk about it in the ways that you've been talking about it, you're right. Nobody wants to talk about mm -hmm. this. But if you tell the truth, you can't shut people up when we start talking about this. And, you know, I got my foot in the door with a lot of media outlets that way. And then the comment sections underneath those articles would just blow up, right? Mm -hmm. People want to talk about grief. We want to talk about it, but only if we're allowed to tell the truth, right? So it's been really, really cool to see. It's weird to call it an industry, but it is an industry. It's weird to see the grief industry, the telling the truth about grief industry grow over the last 10 years, right? From having to fight to get any sort of space um, in the media, anywhere on the bookshelf, that's actually telling the truth without sugarcoating it to now we see like, you know, there are whole platforms, there are whole communities, there are books and documentaries and all of these things. And none of that existed 10 years ago, or you had to work really hard to find it. And, and um, I don't, want grieving people to have to work that hard. Hmm. And you're so right. It is so important and healing to talk about. And I think your book was probably one of the first pieces of literature that just told it like it is. And you also mentioned in an interview that I listened to that everything you thought you knew about coping with death completely evaporated the day that Matt died. And you wanted to go back to all of your clients and apologize for the tools you were taught in training as a clinician. Um, because they just don't kind of teach you how to deal with everything that happens in life. So what do you think you would have done or said differently had you known what you know now? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, I did actually, because I was living in a relatively small town back then, I would run into some of my former clients socially 
And some of them were also therapists. So I felt like I could like, we could actually talk about, I could go in and be like, I was a shit therapist. Can we talk <laughs> about why? And the feedback that I got from them was like, you were the most amazing therapist. Like I did really good work and I know I did. And I knew that back then. I think what was different was that um, even if I didn't always say it out loud, I think I still had the transformation there. I know I still had the transformation narrative sort of baked into my ideas about how the world works. And by transformation narrative, I mean, shit things happen to you and you not become better, but they, they sort of help you see what, what you want for yourself, right? Like some terrible thing erupts in your life and you get to become even more yourself, not because it's a trade, but because like, mm. here's this opportunity. I think I saw, I think I was standing in a foundation of shitty things happen and you have an opportunity to learn more about yourself. When Matt died, I was like, there's no fucking opportunity, right? And for me, I think that's the biggest difference. What has changed for me or what changed for me after Matt died was um, any sense that there can be, growth is really the wrong word, but like, that there is an opportunity to know your own self better through hideous, terrible things. That core is gone, mm -hmm. right? That evaporated. So that sort of um, foundational belief that you will always find ways to know yourself better, I don't believe that. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's a loss or not a loss, but that's just functionally true, right? Because I think, and, and we know this from like, this is, I harp on this so much, but like there's that second half of the sentence in that foundational worldview, right? That you somehow need something to teach you about yourself, that you weren't maybe quite fully in line with your true self, whatever the hell that is, right? Like that, yeah, it's interesting. Like every time somebody asks me that question, I try to articulate it. And I'm like, I don't know. Uh, but I, I think if I have to choose something, it's it's that it's that loss of the worldview that um, you can always find out something more about yourself. I don't know that that's true. I I absolutely agree, and I think there is this cultural narrative that there's like the hero's journey, right? That we you know there's this big transformation. You know, it's always in the movies and the you know the the books and the storyline arc is the hero's transformation. It's going to kind of all you know come good in the end. You're going to kind of you know be like this butterfly and and find find a gift in the shit basically and something that you've said in your book which really hit home um is that you know being brave isn't about overcoming what's happened to you or turning it into a gift it's actually letting the pain unfurl and take up space and sometimes there is no transformation and it's that whole kind of like exactly what you just said like people can put the pressure on themselves to find purpose from their pain or to do something with it to create something with it and you don't have to let yourself off the hook because there is this external pressure that we you know people put on us or we might put on ourselves and I know that's something that a lot of our listeners really struggle with they think they've got to do something with their grief or find some meaning in it and sometimes there is no meaning to be found and I think you are bang on the money there. And again, another another reason I think why everyone loves you so much is because it is the truth of things. Like you just don't have to have some wild transformation. Really don't. I mean, we've got such a deep, deep belief in like this nobility of suffering, which is trash. So true. And we have just jumping back a bit to your experience with grief, Megan, we have a lot of our listeners write in about shock and how difficult that element of grief is to deal with. And you've mentioned before that your grief only really kicked in around six months after Matt's death. Will you talk us through that initial period of shock and what that looked like for you? Sure. I don't know that I would say that again, that grief only showed up. I only got it like after six months because honestly, I'm coming up on 13 years and there are still days that I'm like, what the, what happened? <laughs> no. Um, there was so much to do in the days and weeks and months after Matt died that really it was alternating between physical details that need to, needed to get done and screaming. Mm-hmm. Right. I remember thinking probably somewhere around the six month mark that 
um, that it had been so long, right? Like, okay, here's a really weird story. That's my illustration today. So back in high school, um, I had some pot that was laced with what I understand now was angel dust. So, um, I remember being at this like gathering thing and everybody smoked weed. So I was smoking it and I looked over, okay, it's going to take a second, but it's a, it's a good I'm, story. I'm here for this story. Okay. <laughs> In high school, I was dating this like obnoxious, wealthy white person and they lived in this <laughs> They lived in this gigantic house that had like um, a four four story giant house with a four story window with the stairwell in it. Okay, so you have to imagine there's a stairwell that is four stories up and it's all glass. Okay, got it. Okay, so I'm way out in the yard and I look over and I saw his sister floating up and down the staircase. And then what seemed like absolutely no time later, I was in one of the bathrooms and I was like wow, I was really fucked up when I was outside. <laughs> and then like no time later, I'm in the kitchen. I was like, I was fucked up when I was in the bathroom. That splitting of time went on for months because I am a delicate flower. That's why I don't do any drugs. Um, but I would be like, wow, I was really still fucked up last week. And then a month later, I would be like, sweetie, you were still fucked up last month. That is what grief was like for me for the first several years honestly like in it i would think okay like i got this it's been you know like i'm doing i'm whatever like whatever like i haven't screamed and it's two in the afternoon um but then like the a week later or a day later i would be like wow you're really this is really impossible do you know what i mean like there's mm. this when you're in it you are in it mm. and there is a, a a volume, right? Or an intensity that is what it is. And for me, it's only like looking back going, oh my God, how did you function? Mm -hmm. Like, how did you not cut everybody's heads off? Like maybe you did, right? But that, that sort of um, fracturing of time and reality. Yes. Is what I really, really remember of a lot of the first few years, right? Mm -hmm. Once the, I, I would say that around the six-ish, six-ish month mark was when the, um, the minutia of physical details were done, right? Um, belongings packed and put away or given away, funeral done, memorials done, memorial barbecues done, ashes returned in a box that wouldn't be open for two more years, right? Like the minutia of it, the details, those things started to, to sort of fade out probably around the six month mark. And I remember how horrifying it was to not have those details to do anymore because it meant he was further away from me. This has hit something with me in my personal journey. So my mom died by suicide um, so it was two and a bit years ago and I actually haven't been able to bring myself to do those physical things. Like it's something that still has to be done and I cannot for the life of me do it. So I'd love your professional opinion on how the fuck can I do it? And is yeah. that why I'm not doing it? Because then it becomes real because I kind of feel like maybe that is why it's just too hard to even face. Yeah. And that's really, really, really normal. I mean, I don't really like the word typical because I think it, it has like a dismissive edge to it, but that is really typical. If we think of like, how many people do this? So many people <laughs> do this. Like it is so typical. Okay. So several things. One, I'm going to say, I don't know why you do that. Hmm. You may not know why you do that, but a really great question. If you're, if you're journaling or you're drawing or you're doing like a loose reflective meditation while you go for a walk. Um, you can start with a question to say, um, what will happen when I've cleaned everything out or what will happen when it's done? Mm. Right? And just free write or just like let your brain do it because your answers is also the answer is also the wrong word because it feels so like clean and whatever, but you'll get information about what, what the pause is like for you and mm. what that pause is serving. 
because it is serving something for you. Mm, I'm so never going to tell you what that pause is because I'm not you and I don't know. Yeah. Okay. I, I almost feel like yeah. if I don't delve into her belongings, she's still real somewhere. And if I see those things, it's like, she's not there. Why have I got all of these things of her? She should have them. Like I've probably still a bit of disbelief that I'm yeah, Absolutely. fighting with. Yeah. And I also want to tell you, my love, that two plus years is very early. Mm. It's so early, mm. right? It's when we go back to that fractured timeline, right? Like you might feel like it's been two years, right? And certainly the outside world is like, hello, yeah. it's been two years. Like, You're done you yet? <laughs> um, but when you hit the five-year mark and you look back at two, you're going to be like, oh my God. Yes. Like you got up and you got dressed and you didn't punch anyone. Like you were rocking it, right? Yes. So again, like there's that, you know, give yourself a beat and that pause is serving something for you. So asking into it, free writing into it, honestly, even just holding that question in your mind, what does this pause do for me? Mm. And that is really true. There's something very, you know, outside people who don't know what the hell they're talking about would say you're in denial. Well, one <laughs> denial is also a really healthy coping tool because there is no way that the entire full reality of your person being dead can enter your consciousness all in one fell swoop. It cannot because you would explode, mm. right? Denial is a really, really healthy coping tool that lets you have small sips of that reality at a time mm -hmm. instead of being completely flooded by it, right? Yes. So let's say that you do your reflection and you're like, yep, I'm... I'm afraid of what it will be like for me when the concrete reality of there is no other detail left to do for her. I mean, that was one of the things that it was for me was that once all of those things were done, there was no, no reason for me to take care of him. Mm -hmm. Right there. He didn't need those shoes anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. So there is a, there, there are multiple levels of reality, right. And, and getting the message. Um, so let's say that you're like, okay, I, I have listened to myself. I've checked in. Like, I understand the pause here and I understand my fears. And maybe your first step is going to their house or the storage unit, where everything is, wherever that is, and just go there and leave. Right. Mm. There is absolutely nothing that says you have to go from zero to 60, right? Like you have to go from, I've been avoiding it. It feels really emotional. I don't want to do this. All right. I'm just going to go do the entire thing. Maybe you want to do the entire thing, but maybe you just want to go and stand there for 15 minutes and then go meet your friend for tea. Mm. There is nothing, at least it sounds like in this situation, there is no outside force that is making you do things at a certain pacing or a certain cadence. Now that is not always true, mm. right? I had to do certain things um, by certain family members pacing before I was ready. And that is true for a lot, a lot, a lot of people. Um, so you don't always have that luxury of finding your own cadence and finding your own rhythm, but we're talking about you here. And it sounds like you do have some of that, that space to do that. Would you say Megan, for anyone listening that is, is kind of in the shock phase, the tips that you've just given him around, you know, pausing and questioning, could that help anyone who's kind of struggling with shock? Yeah, I mean, the again, shock is a protective mechanism. There is nothing wrong with, nothing wrong with it, right? It is a way that we protect our nervous systems. Primar primarily, I'm not a neuroscientist. I just have <laughs> slight things that I know about it. Um, but yeah, the shock, the shock is really, really difficult. And I think we've also got this idea, certainly in Western culture, like self-helpy things, like you're supposed to dive into it and face all of it. Like, no, <laughs> no. Right. Emotional flooding, not helpful, mm -hmm. not helpful. So like in those, in those moments where everything just feels unsurvivable, right. That's when we lean on trauma tools, right? So we're, we're going to talk about two different things here. So one is the, the sort of, how can this, how is this life? Like, how did this happen? How is this reality? That sort of shock and disbelief and like that, the crack in the universe, all of those things. And 
um, we'll, we'll talk about that. And then we'll talk about like actual full on emotional flooding, panic attacky type stuff, because I think that those often come together. So the shock phase, it's like, what do I need to feel supported? What do I need? What do I need right now? I think there's a tendency, certainly from the outside world, but also in ourselves to be like, how am I going to live the rest of my life with this? You don't have to, you have to live this minute, Hmm. right? What is it going to take to get through this day, this hour, this appointment with the legal team, this appointment with my mother-in-law or like whatever, like, what is it going to take to get through just this next bit? And anytime you, you fall into that, how am I going to live the next 60 years without this person? You have to, in a way, train your mind, train your habits to come back to this moment. I don't know how I'm going to live that, right? I don't think you can also, I don't think it's terribly effective to try to tell yourself you'll be fine because we don't lie to ourselves very well, (laughs) but to just be able to shrink that timeline down right now. I don't have to live that. I have to live this, right? Mm-hmm. That can really help. It's almost like giving your giving your moment some shock absorbers, right? Mm-hmm. Giving your moment some shock absorbers. What would shock absorbers look like right now? That's actually a really good question. It's a really good thing to explore when you're not on the floor vomiting. <laughs> um, but what I know I'm going to have those horrendous shock moments because they they keep coming. What from this vantage point of not vomiting on the floor, like what would a shock absorber be like for me? What do I want for myself in those moments? Is there any soft place for me to fall, right? It's really time travel in caring for yourself because we know that those moments are gonna come, right? I don't, I don't want you to have to look for ways to take care of yourself and to keep yourself safe and to keep yourself as rooted as you can when you're in one of those big pain flares. Mm-hmm. Right. I want you to know two or three things that you can do to care for yourself when those pain flares come so that you don't have to also think about what you need to do to take care of yourself when your entire body is screaming. Right. So in the sort of like shock, panic attack, freak out things, and there's a story I think that I've told a few times, and I don't remember if it's any of, in any of the books, but um so Matt died in July and the following February, I think I was just managing to go back to grocery stores for very short amounts of time. I think I had probably just recently started eating somewhat regularly by that point. And it's still true. It was true before Matt died. It's still true now. I have no idea what holiday, when holidays happen. Like I routinely have to be like, has it been Christmas? Where are we? I don't, I don't know these things. Mm. So I went to the grocery store and realized it was Valentine's day. That was not good. Mm. So I get into the store and there are all of these couples in there talking about what they want to buy for their romantic dinner. And in my head, I'm just screaming, he's dead. There are no there are no more romantic dinners. There is no one to cook for. No one gives a fuck about Valentine's Day for me, although we didn't either, but still. Um, and I ran out of there and went into my car and had probably the biggest panic attack I've ever had in my entire life before or since. Like terrified. There was just no way, there was just no way that I could, that my physical body could contain the amount of pain that I was in, right? Thank everything for trauma skills because I, I practiced them and taught them for so long. Something in me, I have no idea what, but something in me was like, you're going to count all the orange things you see. And that's what I did completely autopilot. I just counted every orange thing and it brought me off of the edge enough that I could then text a friend of mine and tell them what was going on and find a way to get rooted back in the moment to get my breathing back in my body and to be safe enough to drive home where I could do whatever else I needed to do. But in those, in those panic moments, right? You can't talk yourself out of those meltdowns. You can't reason with yourself because that's not the part of your brain you're in, right? That's why um, it's in the, it's in the um, how to carry what can't be fixed journal too, but I think it's also in it's okay. And in a lot of stuff that I say, it's like, you have to focus on something that is outside of you 
and as boring and repetitive as possible, right? That is not a time for like journaling or like calling a friend. Like we are in triage mode. And this like, I think counting the orange things is, is my go-to example because it's what my brain fell into in that moment in that car outside that grocery store on Valentine's Day, which is a terrible time for somebody to go shopping when their person just died. <laughs> Such a helpful, practical tool. And I'm absolutely going to use that one because my anxiety has just been through the absolute roof since my mum died. And I think people who haven't experienced loss don't even realize that that can happen. And, you know, grief is so physical, isn't it? And it just sends you into a spiral of panic. And I've, yeah, I'm frequently having panic attacks. So I'm going to be counting all of the orange things that I see from now on. That's really helpful. Yeah. And this is, this is also why I say you want to think about these things before you need them in that moment, in that car. I don't know. I was on muscle memory for that stuff. But, um, and, and you also, like, I think there's a temptation here to, to, you know, when you're thinking about this stuff is I'm going to come up with 15 different things. Like, no, come up with three. Okay. Let's pause for a second. Talk about our sponsor for today. Grief, a guided journal by Joe Betts. Journaling has actually been such an integral part of our grief, hasn't it, Sal? It really has. And this journal in particular is my fave because it's been designed for everyone, no matter where you're at in your grief journey. And actually, Im, as you all know, my grief anxiety has been so high recently. Yeah. So I actually picked this journal up after a little hiatus and it's helped me loads in exploring my feelings. And it's really good because you actually don't have to complete it in any order too. I'm proud of you, mate, for doing that. It's so good. And like we bang on about it all the time. But there is such healing power in writing, isn't there? Like it just helps so much to process everything. It really, really does. And also you can drop the F-bombs as much as you like in this one. Absolutely. Guys, if this journal sounds a little bit of you, or if you're looking for a griefy gift for a mate, Good Morning listeners can get a 10% discount on grief. I got a journal with the code GOODMORNING10. And you can find the link to purchase it in our show notes. Okay, guys, back to our conversation with Megan Devine. On the topic of that feeling, fear and panic, something that we've both experienced and and lots of our listeners have as well, and I don't know whether this sort of ties into the sort of anxiety, but it's having a sense of self-doubt and a lack of self-confidence after loss. Why do you think that our sense of self can take a real beating when we're grieving? And what can we do to help ourselves when we feel this way? Yeah. So again, one of those very, very common normal things, right? There's been so much stuff over the last several decades of like, don't be codependent. Like don't rely on anybody else to get your needs met. You have to love yourself first before anybody else can love you. Like all of this trash. So I think we've really internalized this. um, You're not supposed to need anybody, right? That's trash. We are mammals. Mammals are relational beings. We know ourselves by being seen by others, right? So when somebody you love dies, you lose a mirror. You lose a reflection, right? You Mm -hmm. stop being able to see yourself so clearly because you don't have that relational way of understanding yourself, right? So you start to question everything because you no longer have that reverb, right? And especially, um, maybe not especially, but I'm gonna speak to my own experience here, but like sudden accidental death, as a a person who is wired to be anxious anyway, um, like starting to, to doubt or question like what, like how, like how, what did I miss? I should have done this. I should have done this. Like for a really long time, I decided it was my fault that Matt died, even though like he was in the water and I was on the shore. Um, but it's just like, we just go through all of these like review, 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 review. And I think we're looking for a way that we screwed it up so that we can get a do over and that's going to whack your self-esteem and your, your sense of confidence in yourself. You've also got a lot of the outside world saying you're doing it wrong. If you've got enough people reflecting back that you're doing it wrong, you're going to absorb that, right? So, you know, the that self-doubt and the um, not knowing who you are 
anymore. Like that's not doing grief wrong. I think that's just part of grief, right? You lost somebody who helped you make sense of yourself and the world. And without that, there's like a, um, uh, there's this great thing. Do you know Bessel van, Bessel van der Kolk's work, Body Keeps Sport? Okay, so he talks about um, frozen gestures, which is the image that I keep thinking of. So frozen gestures, just really brief little thing here is like, if you're, if you're a kid and somebody moves to hit you, your, your sort of animal response would be to defend yourself. But if you're a kid and you know if you defend yourself, it's going to get worse, you don't do that. And the way that um, Bessel van der Kolk talks about that is like that impulse to protect yourself hasn't gone away. It's frozen in the body. So that part of trauma work is to finish the gesture, right? So there's a lot of punching. <laughs> there's a lot of punching sometimes in, in that kind of trauma work. And I think about that when we're talking about um, hits to self-esteem and sense of self and self-doubt. It's like there was a, a loop. There was a gesture that was created between you and your person, whether it was a good loop or a bad loop or a healthy relationship or a mix or like whatever, there was a loop there that can no longer complete itself. And that is weird. And it is going to mm. whack your equilibrium for a while, right? Uh, on a whole lot of different levels. So um, the self-doubt stuff is also something that other people can't talk you out of. I think this is also related to some, some guilt, right? Um, what signs did I miss? I should have done this. I shouldn't have done this. I should, this would have been better. I wish I had spent more time with this person. Like all of those, all of that stuff that we do. Um, you can't talk somebody out of self-doubt or feeling like it's their fault. I'll give you an example here. So like, um, if somebody says like, um, you know, I, I didn't, I did, I hadn't told my mom I loved her in such a long time and then she died and now I can't. And people will respond to that and say, but she knew you loved her. Like, mm. that's not what we're talking about right now. We're talking about my regret that I didn't say it and how, what a terrible first person I feel like, because I didn't say it. So let's like, let's validate that. Right. But instead we get bombarded with this stuff that asks you to invalidate the way that you're feeling. Right. And that is part of our, our cultural idea about what it means to be in relationship with people. We think we are supposed to cheer them up. Mm. We're supposed to make them feel good about themselves. We are supposed to get them out of whatever difficult thing is they're feeling and into a happy state. Well, it doesn't work. Mm. Right? Definitely. And this, this resonates with me so much and you just make so much sense of it. But because my mom died from suicide, my grief was just guilt and anger for so long. And I just sat in that place and I just, the thoughts that I was having were so irrational, but I needed someone to sit with me and just, like you say, validate what it is that I'm thinking and feeling. And that's, it was helpful for me to process everything that way, rather than people shutting it down and trying to fix me. It's like, this thing, this situation is so fucked and mm -hmm. I am not in a normal headspace right now. So yes, yeah, so helpful. Yeah. And it really, like, as a supporter, it really doesn't cost you anything to reflect your friend's pain back to them. It doesn't, it doesn't cost you anything. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm. you're not failing to be a good friend or a good person if you're not cheering them up. Like, reflecting somebody's pain back to them is the best thing you can do. It's counterintuitive because it's not the way that we're taught. But honestly, like, it is the only thing that helps. It's the only thing that helps. I see this, like we see this not only in grief, but also in chronic illness, in disability, in stress levels and burnout, like in for healthcare workers or other folks, like when somebody says I'm in pain, the, in my world, the proper response is to say, yep, you're in pain. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem like it would do anything, but it does everything. And I think it can be so hard for people who don't feel like they have supportive friends or family members as well. And one of your favorite quotes is that grief rearranges your address book. And, you know, and I think a lot of these reasons are why, like people just don't know how to shop. They don't know how to support you. And it's really common, isn't it, for relationships to be impacted? Yeah, absolutely. So, and this is, so I think we can talk about, um, sort of like the, the close in circle of, you know, one person dies and every family member is affected in a different way. Mm. And 
there's always a not always I shouldn't say that there is often a lot of infighting in family systems when one person dies. So if you think about um, if you think about a mobile, right? So there are those the things that kids have with all the different things. Like you whack one piece of that, and everything is going to move. And that's mm-hmm. the way that death affects family systems. It's the way that it affects friend groups, right? Everybody is hit by it, but everybody moves in a different way. So, you know, you'll see some members of a family or a friend group be seemingly unaffected, right? And then you'll see other people who are like, uh, and that it's almost like the inability to talk about different ways of responding and feeling inside a loss like that, like we get stuck in one way is right. And the other way is wrong instead of curiosity about like, I'm doing, I feel differently about this than you are. And you're doing, you know, you want to have a memorial, whereas you just want to be like alone and have a hike. Isn't that interesting? Can we talk about the different ways that we do this? That's not how we roll, right? We're like, you can't do it that way. Cause I don't have. like, we get really like um, competitive around whose way is proper. So there's that element of it. And there's also like, I think that a lot of people disappear because they can't tolerate how awkward it feels and how helpless they feel. Like nobody likes to feel helpless. Nobody likes to see the people they care about be in pain. And you look at your friend who's in pain and you know that there's nothing you can do to fix that or make it right. And that feel that feeling of being helpless to stop somebody's pain is really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people just disappear because they can't tolerate the helplessness. Right. Which is why, you know, one of the things that I say a lot is like your job as a supporter is to tolerate your own helplessness, not run away because you feel so helpless. Right. And that's that cultural messaging that we have that we believe to, we believe two things. One is that it's our job to make somebody feel better. Nope. Not your job. (laughs) If it were your job, I fire you. (laughs) Um, So we think it's our job to make somebody feel better, which is not true. Our job is to help people feel heard. Very different, very different job description. And the other thing is like all of our books and all of our media, all of our storylines have that transformational arc, right? Like the prolonged grief disorder thing, the stages of grief, like there is a timeline here and we've learned that, right? We've learned that we are good helpers. We've gone to Google and looked on how to like support a grieving friend. And we know that they're supposed to be on acceptance by now. So not only do we feel like it's our job to make somebody feel better, but we have learned Mm -hmm. acceptable way to be supportive is to get somebody out of their pain. So we are literally just doing what we've been taught. So if you're a grieving friend, you're doing it like textbook perfect here, being the best supporter, trying to get them out of it and think about the good times and remember the happiness. And they wouldn't want you to be sad and you're going to have the best life and they're going to be so proud of you. Like all of that stuff, you're doing exactly what you're supposed to do. And then your grieving friend turns around and says, this is so not helpful, right? And then we get into conflict here because nobody likes to be told they're not doing it right or they're not being helpful. And that kicks into that whole helpless, awkward cycle, right? And it gets really complicated, but honestly, the the one answer here is to have open conversations about what this is like, right? Like... I understand that you're really trying to help me and this is really hard. It's really hard to, to see me be in pain and I get that. I need you to know that these two things are really not helpful and here's what I might need you to do instead. Now, every time I talk about like real grown-up communication skills, I've always got in my own head, but also like people comment like, why does the person in this much pain, why are they the ones who have to be like the grown-up and use grown-up skills? It's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair. And when you're in pain, you should not have to be the one leading a grown-up conversation. Unfortunately, that is sometimes what happens, Mm. right? And sometimes you just don't have it in you, especially if we're talking about those, like the early grief years, you don't have it in you. I have had really good communication skills for decades. I didn't fucking use any of them. Yeah. And I think this is where having some boundaries in place as well. If, you know, if people are doing you more harm than good, even if they're really trying as a griever, it is okay to set boundaries, isn't it? Do you have any tips 
quick tips on sort of how we can set better boundaries? I know it's a tricky subject and it's different for everyone, it's but not though. It's not. It's like you don't need. Um, very often people will ask me for scripts for specific things. They're like, okay, no, but how about this situation? How about this situation? I'm like, you don't, you, you don't need all of those things. Like you need a way to respond to things, not exact scripting, right? You need an approach, not an encyclopedia, right? So um, this kind of breaks down into a, a few different things, right? So if you've got, um, let's say at family gatherings, you know that you have a couple of people in your extended family who are just going to be assholes, they're just going to like, you know, tell you you're doing it wrong, ask you when you're dating again, like, you know, have you packed up your mom's shit yet? Like, they're just going to do that. It is not worth having a grown up conversation in that space. It's not safe for you. It's not going to work. It's not worth your energy. And what we often do is we get into um, battles of defending our right to feel how we feel. That's not going to work with somebody like your great aunt Tilly. It's not going to work. Right. So to know that in those kinds of situations, you can say things like, you have some really strong opinions about this. That's not something that I'm willing to listen to right now. Do you want to talk about X, Y, and Z? Right? Very, very simple. So three steps here, right? Like acknowledge what they just said, put your boundary in place. That's actually not a topic I'm going to discuss right now. Third thing is change the subject. If they won't change the subject, you leave. You hang up, you end the call, you leave the room, you go talk to somebody else, right? You do not have to come up with more excuses, more excuses, or more reasons. Excuses is not the right word. You don't have to come up with more reasons why you're not going to talk about it. If they're going to be an asshole, you leave the room, right? One of my old uh, colleagues used to say, you don't have to attend every argument you're invited to. That's I what we're talking that. about. <laughs> Isn't that good? Right? Yeah. There are some people who do not, this seems really rude, but there are some people who are not worth the energy to have a conversation with. They're just, they're just not right. Mm -hmm. It is okay to say, so taking that, taking the, the three-step plan there for boundaries, taking that, acknowledging what the person said, putting a boundary in place, and then stating the action that will happen next. Like you can use that method. I don't usually have methods, but we're going to call that one a method. Uh, you can put that boundary method into place with any relationship, right? Like you've got a best friend who is always trying to get you to look on the bright side and you love this person and you had a good relationship before your person died, but it's, mm, it's not working. And you find yourself really tense and really stressed out every time you have an interaction with them. And it's got weird. It's weird. So what you can do is um, open a conversation and say, you know, I have something I need to talk with you about and it feels really awkward. Do you have time to talk about it? Right? So like stating like, this feels really weird to me and it's like, it's really scary. And I want to have this conversation together. Like these are classic couples counseling skills, right? Like you don't want to ambush somebody with a deep emotional conversation <laughs> and it's not good for you and it's not good for them. So to be able to say like, there's been something on my mind and I would really love to talk with you about it. And it's really scary for me but I love you and I really want to have this conversation with you, right? And the person says, I'm in a meeting right now. I can't do this. Or like, I'd love to do it later. Or sure, you know, you can always tell me anything. So then you can state what you're experiencing. I've noticed that whenever I seem a little bit sad, you come in and try to cheer me up and it feels really gross to me or not helpful. I need, I need to talk about what we do when you notice that I'm feeling really sad or I come to you and I say that I miss my mom. I've noticed that whenever I tell you I miss my mom, you come back and tell me um, that she wouldn't want me to be sad. Mm. That's what this feels like for me. And here's what I would love to see instead. Can you do that? Right? This is what I feel. This is what I see happening. This is how it feels for me. Here's what I would like to do instead. And then the last question is super important. Is that something you feel like you can do? When I come to you and I say I'm sad and I miss my mom, can you ask me these questions. Can you um, tell me you miss her too, right? Is there a way that we can both get what we most want, which is for you to feel like a great friend and for me to feel loved and supported? Mm. Now, that is the ideal. Sometimes you do not have the energy in you to do that. I've dropped friendships because I don't want to have a 
grown up conversation. Like I don't fucking have that in me and I'm not doing it anymore. <laughs> really valid. Um, you also get to have a do over a year later, <laughs> right? Like you can't be mean. Like the, this is not like licensed to be a jerk to other people. But what I want you to understand, if you are in the depths of pain, you don't always have to find it in you to be the bigger person, bigger person and come out with these great skills. Sometimes you don't have that in you and you can't do it, right? Sometimes it's not worth it. Sometimes it's not worth it, right? I'm never gonna have a conversation with my mother about why we're not super close. I have the skills. I definitely don't have the desire, right? Mm. So you get to make those decisions I just, I want everybody to know that you do not have to stay in conversations that feel shitty to you. And you also don't have to do a whole knockdown, drag out, defend your reason for not wanting to be in the conversation, right? Uh, you can, what, what was the, there was a phrase I used a long time ago, like you can end an argument by putting on your hat and walking out the door, right? Like you don't, you don't have to do that stuff. There just is a reality that because of the ways that we've all been taught to be a good friend or a good supporter, we've all absorbed those um, toxic fallacies, right? About what it means to support somebody you care about. There are times where you need to be able to say to the people who love you, this is not helping. Hmm. And whenever I tell you something isn't helping, you get really angry, which means like, I don't feel like we're doing this well, right? One of the things, um, you know, one of my hopes for the world and one of the reasons that I, I talk more about how we human, uh, not just about grief specifically, is like the time to build relationships where you can have those kinds of difficult conversations is before you need to have a difficult conversation, right? The time to build your support networks for if life falls apart is before your life falls apart right? Practice having conversations about how you show up for each other, how, what you need, how you're feeling, because honestly, no one even needs to die for you to be having a really hard time. Mm -hmm. How are we going to talk to each other about that? How are we going to show up about it? How are we going to disagree? How are we going to tell each other? Ooh, I know that you brought me a whole bunch of food because I was sick and you brought me a whole bunch of food and I so appreciate it. I'm actually allergic to eggs. Right. So that your friend knows the next time they want to put all this effort into making you a care package because you have a cold that they don't put stuff with eggs in it. Right. Like that seems like a really low barrier thing. But even those conversations are hard because we're not accustomed to standing up for ourselves because we don't want to make somebody else uncomfortable. We would rather make ourselves uncomfortable than make somebody else uncomfortable. And that is not getting us the kinds of friendships and communities that we want. Megan. It has been so nice to talk to you. An absolute treat. Thank you so much for your time. Uh -oh. And um, no doubt many of our listeners are familiar with you, but for those that aren't, can you tell them where they can find you? The website is refugingrief.com and refugingrief on all of the social media platforms. The podcast is Hereafter with Megan Devine. You can find that wherever you listen to your podcast right now. We're in repeats and greatest hits of season one while I'm working on season two. Um, the two books are, it's okay that you're not okay. Meeting grief and loss in a culture that doesn't understand it is in, um, print and audio and digital, and it is available in, I think 14 different languages right now. You can always uh, message on social media and ask Micah, and they will give you the titles of the different editions in different languages and how to carry what can't be fixed is the journal, which is pretty awesome. I love that thing. Um, available wherever you get books. There was one more thing. Oh, um, doing a lot more training and consulting now. So working with folks in the medical industries, um, in corporate America, which is kind of crazy, but to just talk about how do we, how do the professionals talk about grief and, and support grieving people? Because if we want things to be better for individual grieving people, somebody's got to teach therapists to do a better job. So if you are a clinician or a therapist, or you work in any of those sorts of helping professions, or you encounter humans who are going through hard times, which is everybody, you can go to megandivine.co, not calm, because that's a different person, but megandivine.co and find information about trainings. And when the podcast comes back out, comes back out for season two, that's going to get announced there too. So megandivine.co, those are all the places. 
such important work you're doing and loads of incredible resources. We'll link everything in the show notes, but thank you so much for everything that you do for the grieving community. And yeah, it's just been such a joy to spend this hour with you. Thanks. What an amazing chat. I bloody love Megan. I feel so honored to have had her on the pod and just share all of her realness with us. Guys, we hope you enjoyed the conversation too. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, if you could leave us a cheeky rating or a review wherever you listen, that would be so appreciated as it helps Good Morning get seen by others. And we will see you next time. Stay tuned as we've got so much goodness coming for you this season, guys. Bye. Bye.